John chapter 13, starting in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should be giving something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You, are, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray now that you, by your spirit, would come and give light to us, to open our hearts to receive your word. Help us to see our sin, our lack of love for one another, and repent of it. And help us to see what you have called us to do and to obey. Give us grace to look to Jesus for his help and his example. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you remember from last week, Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room and he has just washed their feet, which was both a symbolic act that pointed to what he was going to do to die on the cross and his blood would be shed for their sins. 
His blood would wash away their sins. It was a symbolic act, and yet it was also an example for them in how they were to serve one another. And Jesus said to Peter, and you are clean, but not every one of you. And John gives us that little side note in verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And this was in reference to Judas, whom the devil had already put in his heart to betray Jesus. In this passage before us, we have a betrayal, a denial, and a new commandment. Jesus foretells the betrayal of Judas. He foretells the the denial of Peter. He'll deny him three times. And then sandwiched between those two things, Jesus gives a new commandment to love one another as he loved them. And he says that this would be how all people would know who his true disciples are, by the way in which they love one another. And so the main point of the sermon this morning, what I hope you see in the text, is simply this. Disciples of Jesus are known by their Christ-like love for one another. Disciples of Jesus are known by their Christ-like love for one another. All right, so look at the text. We, we first see the betrayal. In verse 21, we read, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Remember last week, I mentioned that John Calvin said that while the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, present the body of Jesus, the Gospel of John presents the soul of Jesus. And that's what we see here. John is giving us some insight into what's really going on inside Jesus. And he tells us that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. We're getting a glimpse of the the human side of Jesus. Jesus being fully God, he was in control of the entire situation here in the upper room, but also being fully man. He was not unmoved by what was going on. Jesus experienced natural human emotions. He was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus is troubled by the thought that one of his disciples, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Those of you here this morning who have experienced betrayal, know that you are not alone. Our Savior experienced betrayal, and he wasn't emotionless. It bothered him. It grieved him. He loved Judas. Judas was a close friend. And yet, Judas didn't love him back. Jesus was grieved in this moment because of the betrayal. Jesus was grieved in this moment also because what this meant for Judas. In rejecting Jesus, Judas would then be separated from God forever and suffer for his sins. 
Jesus was troubled in his spirit because he was going to be betrayed, because of what would happen to Judas, and also because death was near. The reality of the cross was closer, where he would bear the wrath of God for the sins of those who believe in him, and he would experience complete separation from the Father. He was troubled in his spirit. And then he says those words, truly, truly. Remember, when we see that phrase, it should grab our attention. Jesus is saying, listen up, pay attention. What I'm about to say is important. He says it twice in our passage this morning. Do you notice that? Here, in order to foretell the betrayal of Judas, and then later on in verse 38, to foretell the denial of Peter. And, and so Jesus has told his disciples that there is a traitor among them. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they all look at one another and are confused. John tells us that they were uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, unfortunately, we tend to look down on the disciples in moments like this and think, wow, these guys were very clueless. And it's true, they did misunderstand things. But we have a vantage point of knowing the rest of the story. We know what's going on behind the scenes. We know that Jesus is going to die and that he's going to rise again. And we know that Judas is going to betray Jesus because we've heard it before. We've read it before. And even John has already told us about Judas in the Gospels. He told us about things that he didn't know until after. But imagine being among them in this moment, not knowing what you know. They've been together for three years. And so imagine there's this pastor and this group of young men who he's been mentoring and pouring his life into. And, and they've basically spent each and every waking hour together for three years. They've heard some amazing things. They've seen some amazing things. And then one night you're having dinner together and the pastor says, one of you will betray me. You would be right to think, wait, what? We've, we've spent all this time with you. We've sacrificed everything. We've followed you through all of this. We know each other. Who of us would betray you? you would be confused as well. And so in verse 23, John writes, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Here we have the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, if we didn't know any better, we would assume that it was Peter. But Peter's going to speak in a moment and motion to this disciple, so it's not Peter. So who is it? Well, later on, we, we see this disciple whom Jesus loves show up in chapter 19 and then in chapter 20. And then at the end of the book, in chapter 21, he says that he is the one who wrote this book. And so John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. But don't hear that description and think the one whom Jesus loved more than others. 
That's not what John is saying. John is not trying to draw attention to himself. If he was, he would have said, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is not a designation of pride, but a designation of humility. John is saying, you know who I am? I am simply another person that Jesus loves. We all know that Jesus loved all the disciples. We, we saw that in verse 1. We read that Jesus loved his own, and he loved them to the end. But it's significant that this is what John calls himself. He felt so loved by Jesus that this is what he called himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the same could be said about anyone in this room who believes in Jesus. We are all the disciples whom Jesus loves. And so John is reclining at table at Jesus' side. Remember, the, the tables were actually a little bit low back then. And so you would be basically laying on your side, leaning up to the person next to you. And so John is on one side of Jesus, almost leaning back on him, which is a very special place to be. And so Peter motions to John in verse 24. Look at verse 24. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Now, it's sort of fun to picture what this would have looked like. Because we all know Peter's not really a subtle person, right? So from across the table, you could almost imagine him mouthing the words, psst, psst, hey, hey, John, John, ask him. Ask him, who is it? Who is it? And so John leans back and asks Jesus, who is it? And Jesus responds. Jesus says to John, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, we don't know for sure, but this was likely more of a whisper, a conversation just between John and Jesus. Because in verse 28, it says that no one at the table knew why Jesus said what he said to Judas. They must have not heard Jesus say this. And when Judas gets up to leave, they just assume, oh, he's probably going to go get food for dinner, or, or maybe he's going to go care for the poor. That's how deceptive Judas was. No one suspected him. Jesus knew, but none of the disciples did. Judas was not a true believer in Jesus. He was not saved. He was a hypocrite and a false convert. And this is what allows Satan to enter into him. Satan cannot enter into a believer. While he can tempt a Christian, he can never possess a Christian. Judas was a false convert, and now he's being controlled by Satan. But to this room of disciples, they didn't know what was really going on. Judas leaves, and they just assume the best of him. After all, Judas was a trusted member of the disciples. He was their treasurer. He carried the money bag that supported Jesus and the disciples as they traveled along. 
Back in chapter 12, remember, Mary takes this pound of expensive ointment and anoints the feet of Jesus. And what does Judas say? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And to the other disciples, this might have looked like a righteous response. Like, oh yeah, Judas is right. That guy really cares about the poor. But John writes, reflecting back on that moment in John chapter 12, verse 6, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas had them all fooled. He was a thief. He was a traitor. He cared about money, and he cared about himself. In fact, it would be money that would lead him to betray Christ and sell him out for only 30 pieces of silver. It's very possible that Judas might have been the other one on Jesus' side and maybe heard a little bit of that conversation between Jesus and John. And that handing Judas that morsel that was dipped was Jesus' way of reminding Judas that he loved him. Maybe it was a warning. It was Jesus' last act of kindness to Judas. But now Satan enters into him. And so Jesus says, in complete control of the situation, what you are going to do, do quickly. And so in verse 30, John writes, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. That little phrase, it was night, is significant. Remember that in John, light and darkness are important spiritual images. Jesus is the light of the world, and Judas hated the light and rejected Jesus and went out into darkness. What happens here with Judas is a warning to us all. He saw the light, he understood it, but he chose the darkness instead. Going to church, trying to be a good person will not save you. Judas heard the best sermons ever. He saw miracle after miracle, but because he did not believe or trust in Christ, his soul was lost forever. And so if you're here this morning and you consider yourself maybe a religious person, but you have not believed in Jesus Christ, I urge you to believe because he is the only way to salvation. To betray him and reject him is to choose darkness over light. It's to choose sin and hell over salvation and heaven. Judas rejected Jesus, and he ran further into the darkness. And yet, as soon as Judas leaves, the room seems to get lighter and, and brighter, and Jesus starts talking about glory. 
Now, you might think after Judas leaves, which signifies that Jesus' death is coming sooner, that Jesus would say something like, now we see that there's evil in the world. But that's not what Jesus says. Look at verse 31. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. Jesus goes from being troubled in spirit to speaking about glory. What looks to be the beginning of defeat, Jesus knows to be the beginning of glory. Because Judas has left to go betray Jesus, this sets in motion not only what God had planned and predicted through the prophets that would happen, but what he had planned from eternity past to happen the death of the Son of God in order to redeem and save sinners like you and me. From a human perspective, the death of Christ is a moment of suffering and humiliation. But from the divine perspective, it was the revelation of the glory of God. The Son will be glorified as he obeys the Father and dies for the sins of the world. And the Father will be glorified in the obedience of the Son. Sinclair Ferguson says this, there is glory in the cross. Jesus is not the victim there. He's the victor. At the cross, Jesus defeats Satan, sin, and death. Conquering the devil brings God glory. The redemption of sinners brings God glory. Jesus' defeat of death through his resurrection, promising eternal life to all who believe, brings God glory. And Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And so he's here in this upper room. He's telling his disciples, I'm going to the cross, and then I'm going back to the Father. And that's important because when they see him crucified, if he had not told them these things, they would have crumbled under it in despair. They had given up everything to follow Jesus. And if they see him nailed to the cross without him saying these things, they would have crumbled. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. What brings God the most glory? the death of his son on the cross. Not what we do, but what Christ has done. Jesus talks to them about glory, and then he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he gives them this new commandment to love one another. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. 
This is the most important part of our passage. A new commandment I give to you. Now remember, this moment in the upper room is happening on Thursday night, the day before Jesus will be crucified. So the next day is Friday, Good Friday. And sometimes the day before Good Friday, people celebrate something called Monday Thursday. Monday Thursday, not Monday Thursday. It sounds like that, which makes it pretty confusing. So I hope this helps. Monday is the Latin word mandatum, which means command. So Monday Thursday is commandment Thursday because of this verse right here. A new mandatum, a new commandment I give to you. The command is to love one another. Now, is this really a new commandment? To love one another? That's never been said before in the Bible and the Old Testament scriptures? What about Leviticus 19? Definitely a book of the Bible you wouldn't think would be a love verse, right? Leviticus 19, verse 8 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or how about Mark chapter 12, where Jesus summarizes the law with these two commandments, which every Jew knew the summary of the law, to love God and love your neighbor. So how is this a new commandment, Jesus? This isn't the first time that God's people have been told to love one another. Well, it's new because there is a new example. No one had loved like Jesus did. The love we are to have one another has been displayed. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus has loved us to the point of laying down his life for us. He came from heaven's glory and he took on human flesh and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross in order to purify us, to cleanse us, to redeem us. And he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the type of love that we are to have for one another. We are called to sacrificially lay down ourselves for others, just like Jesus has done for us. Now, this commandment does seem to talk more about loving those who are in Christ, but that doesn't mean we neglect and we don't love unbelievers. Don't forget the other verses that say we are to love our enemies or to bless those who persecute us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. We were his enemies, and yet he showed his love for us, yet while we were still sinners, we are to love others. And yet in this passage, the focus seems to be on the Christian community. This is the defining mark of a Christian and a Christian church. You can know all the theology. 
You can know all the Bible and be able to quote scripture. You can know the Greek and the Hebrew. But if you never learn to love, you've missed the point. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. How does the world know that we are followers of Christ? We can give many answers to that. We can say, well, because we preach and believe the gospel. Don't get me wrong. That's extremely important. If we're not even Christians if we don't believe the gospel. But that is not how the world knows that we are Christians. Or we might say, because we do good works and help the poor and the needy. That too is important. And we are failing in our Christian duty if we're not doing that. But even good works are not the distinctive marks of the disciples of Jesus Christ. If we want the world to know that we belong to Jesus, if we want the gospel to appeal to a lost and broken world, then we have to love one another as he has loved us. This type of loving community can only happen in the church among true believers who have been redeemed by the dying love of Jesus. The world does not have this. They have fake counterfeit versions of this but you will never find this type of love outside the church. And when the world looks and sees believers whom they hate because they hate Jesus, when they see us loving one another, then they will truly and really know that we are his disciples. And as Jesus is, is giving this new commandment, Peter is stuck on those words. Where I am going, you cannot come. It, in verse 36, it's as if Peter jumps over verses 34 and 35 and goes back to verse 33. It's as if he didn't even listen to that commandment. Jesus gives this new commandment. This is the real important thing. And Peter is like, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answers Peter and says, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Jesus is saying, it's not your time to suffer. It's my time. You will after, but not now, Peter. You see, Peter loves Jesus, and it seems like he's starting to understand a little more that Jesus is talking about his death. And so in verse 37, he says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Oh, Peter, you don't get it. You've gotten it all wrong. Jesus answers, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here we have that truly, truly statement again, now with Peter. Peter, you really think you're going to lay down your life for me? 
No, Peter. You're going to cower in fear and deny me three times. What Peter seems to be saying to Jesus is, Jesus, you need me. And Jesus lovingly corrects Peter and says, no, my friend, you need me. Peter and all of us need Jesus to lay his life down for us. Peter says, I will lay down my life for you, but in just a few hours, Peter will deny Jesus three times. This shows the weakness of self-confidence. Peter is full of self-trust. And we live in a culture that tries to feed us these destructive phrases all the time. Like, you got this. Trust in your heart. Believe in yourself. While they sound nice, they're unhelpful and false. It's very easy to believe that we can live the Christian life in our own strength. And that's why Peter's being used as example here. We can't. Our hearts are deceitful. We are weak. And we need to learn to not trust ourselves, to not trust in our own efforts, in our own strength. We all need God's help. And by God's grace, this weak and stubborn Simon Peter, he will deny Jesus. Peter, the rock, will crumble. But unlike Judas, he will be restored and follow Jesus right to the end. And as we look back on this passage and think about both of those foretellings, those truly, truly statements about Judas and Peter, sandwiched between the betrayal and the denial is this beautiful commandment to love one another. And we have these two bad examples. Judas only cared about himself. He didn't love Jesus and certainly didn't love others. And Peter, while he did love Jesus, was way too overconfident in himself and failed. We cannot love others if all we care about is ourselves. And we cannot love others the way that Jesus tells us to if we try to do it in our own strength. We have to look to Jesus and love one another as he has loved us. Loving one another is the defining characteristic of Jesus' disciples. So question for all of us, is that true of us? Are we marked fundamentally by love? Now, when I say love, I don't mean a worldly love, like the Beatles sang. All you need is love. Dun, 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 dun. Because we're not talking about unity apart from truth. This type of love is rooted in who Jesus is. 
It's rooted in sound doctrine. It's rooted in serving others and laying our lives down for others in order to serve them and their physical needs and their spiritual good. It's by following the example set by Jesus. John says later on in one of his letters, 1 John 3, 16 through 18, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Loving others is walking the walk and not talking the talk. See, it's very unlikely that any of us are going to literally be called to die in the place of another Christian. It's possible. But true Christian love involves a bunch of little tiny deaths as we set aside our pride, as we set aside our own preferences and our own comforts. What John says here is that love takes action. It takes action by showing generosity toward one another, by forgiving one another. When a brother or sister is in need of help and you think to yourself, is he or she worthy of my help? Do I want to spend my time serving this person? We are to think of Christ's love for us. When a brother or sister sins against us and and we think to ourselves, should I hold a grudge or should I forgive? We need to think of Christ's love for us. In a church like ours, no one should have to cry or struggle alone. There should be no unforgiveness among us. No angry gossiping and talking behind each other's backs. There should be an eagerness to help and serve those who are in need. Now, I can, I can say I already see this in this church. And, and it's definitely a defining characteristic because I, I have friends that come and visit. And that is one of the things that they say, wow, that church is a loving church. So there's much to be thankful for in what God has already been doing in you. I actually even told Pastor Scott the other day, great job in pastoring this church to being a loving church. And then obviously, classic Pastor Scott said, well, it was somebody else. (laughs) We've seen this among you. God has been working among you. And yet, we all need this reminder Because if you think you have it already, you don't because there's an element of pride in that. And we are sinful people who by nature only love ourselves or we only love others from what we can get from them. And the bar is set so high that we'll never achieve it in this life. None of us is going to love Another person like Christ has loved us. But we try and continue trying and ask the Lord to help us. There should never be a moment in my life when I'm not coaching myself, Tony, you need to love others as Jesus has loved you. Why? 
because I'm so selfish by nature. I fail at this every day. I don't love my wife. I don't love my children. I don't love my church like I should. And you will fail at loving one another as Christ has loved you. And that's why we go back to the Lord Jesus and tell him, Lord, I have not loved others like I should. Have mercy on me. Wash me. Cleanse me. And help me to grow in loving others as you have loved me. We remind ourselves of the gospel that has saved us. And that be the motivation to live in obedience to this command. May people say about you and those in this church, I may not agree with those Christians and what they say about gender and marriage and abortion. I may not believe in their Bible, but they must be Christians because of the way that they love one another. The church, despite all its messiness, should be known for its love. The unbelieving world should look at us loving one another and say, look at how they forgive. Look at how they care. Look at how they provide for one another in need. By this, all people will know we are disciples of Jesus if we have love for one another. By grace, Christ has loved us and given himself for us. And now he calls us to love one another as he has loved us. Disciples of Jesus are known by their Christ-like love for one another. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, the love that you call us to is patient. It is kind. It's a love that does not envy or boast, a love that is not arrogant or rude, a love that does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It's a love that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. It's a love that never ends. This is impossible for us. But with you, all things are possible. And by your spirit, we ask that you would enable us to love in this way. And in doing so, to show ourselves truly to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the redemption that we have in him and for your love for us. We ask that you would make us people who love one another like you have loved us. Give us grace. Be glorified as the world sees you working in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.